Welcome to episode 249 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Joshua Carlson. This episode will be a little different from most because I wanted to talk about how important the Space Force is and why people should consider joining the Space Force. And I didn't really know how to do this, but then my husband recommended I read the book Space Power Ascendant, which is written by Joshua Carlson. And he did such a good job of explaining the threats to space especially with China, and why it is so important for the United States to not only have a space force, but for the space force to change their mission statement and their mission focus. And we were able to talk about what he learned in asking the question of why is China a threat? And it was really interesting to hear the background and the story of how Space Power Ascendant came to be, and all the different things that he learned, and the history, and I learned a lot than I already knew from reading the book, because we talked about the history of China, and different things that happened to lead to why China made the mission statement that they have, and why they're in the focus that they're in. So, I think this episode is really interesting, and I think everyone should read Space Power Ascendant. It's such a fascinating book and it's available in print and on audible and so you can listen to it or you can read it i have done both and i'm always learning something new because it's just so detailed and so fascinating and i think if you have questions about why space is so important this interview will really bring some insight to that before we get started with the interview I want to remind you that Women of the Military podcast is available on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now, with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. I'm really excited to have Joshua Carlson here. I am a space-crazy person. My husband's in the Space Force, and we watch you know, launches all the time. Not as much as we used to, but I really love space, but I didn't really understand it. But my husband read Space Power Ascendant, Joshua's book. Um, It was on General Gutlein's reading list and uh, he worked for General Gutlein when he was Colonel Gutlein. And so he, he started hitting off the books on his list and he recommended I read it. And I really enjoyed it as someone who's been on the fringe of space and didn't really understand a lot of the technicalities. So I'm really excited to dive in, learn more about you and why you wrote the book and share it with all my listeners. Excellent. I, I'm so happy to be here, Amanda. This is uh, one of my favorite topics. So I'm, I'm very excited to get a chance to talk about this. Just upfront, giving a disclaimer, as you mentioned, um, these are my personal views. Anything I say here is, has no bearing on any policy and is not meant to imply the support of the DOD, the Space Force, Air Force, Army, et cetera. So getting, having to get that out of the way, I, I really enjoyed writing the book in particular. So we were talking a little bit beforehand on uh, the book was originally brought up as, you know, why is China a threat? And so when I originally started writing it, that was actually the question I had as well, because everyone in senior leadership seemed to be very concerned about it as far back as uh, 2013 or so. I I started to notice that there was a lot of messaging that China's a threat, China's concerning. But there was never really any particular um, strategic presentation of this is why it's a concern. It was always, well, they did an ASAT test back in 2007 timeframe. And, you know, they made lots of debris and that's horrible. So therefore they're a threat. That's, That's not a 
as I was really reflecting on it, at having I had a year to go to school and really reflect on this sort of stuff. And the uh, the strategic implications of that, I mean, it's a it's a weapon system. There's lots of weapon systems. Uh, I, I, uh, India recently tested a uh, ASAT successfully, and uh, we don't consider them a threat in the same way that we do China. So clearly there's something different there. What's the rest of the story? So I had a chance to talk to Namrata Goswami, who's testified before Congress on the, the threat that China poses, particularly in space and with their space program. And um, since then, I've also talked to uh, Jonathan Ward, another great thinker on the subject who has a background in, uh, both of them have spent, I believe, physical time in China. Dr. Goswami for a year, Jonathan, I think was also for a year. Both of them have written books. I'd, I'd recommend both of them. Dr. Goswami and Pete Gerritsen recently wrote uh, Scramble for the Skies. And Jonathan Ward's uh, original book that put him on the map was China's Vision of Victory. And um, the then the, they have the new one that just came out that was America's Vision of Victory, which talks about, okay, China's trying to do this. Here's what we need to do to counter them. Got a chance to actually talk to them. So what did I find out? So... Com combining the Chinese intention to expand to beyond Earth's orbits and actually put, have permanent placement on the moon and start to reap the economic and strategic benefits of doing that, and, and those are significant, that combined with their aggressive nature, and this is where understanding, I, I, would, I would consider the greatest maxim in warfare is know your enemy, know yourself, uh, which is from Sun Tzu, interestingly enough. And uh, if you do not understand Chinese intentions, then it is possible to misinterpret what they are doing. From, uh, and Jonathan does a great job of this, so I would highly recommend America, uh, China's Vision of Victory and his subsequent book. But China's Vision of Victory, he, he draws a through line from Mao through every single Chinese premier all the way to Xi, the current one, where they have all preached a, um, a China, the, the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And you have to understand in Chinese psychology and in their view of history, with some justification, because all, all, all narratives have some basing in truth, the Chinese largely, I wouldn't say dominated, but definitely had significant con control in the world stage from as far back as we have. There's dynasties as far back as we can go, basically. Up until about 1820, give or take. And... In China's perspective, they call it the, um, the century of humiliation, that in about 1820, this upstart nation called England showed up and said, hey, you know, we, we would like to trade with you. Not only would we like to trade with you, we have these cool poppies called opium that we would love to give you at a price, of course. And England said, and China said, no, thank you. England said, well, you don't understand. We're going to give it to you anyway. And that started the Opium Wars, which eventually basically ended up in the, the warlords and, and China largely being desolate for about 100 years. Um, uh, no central government, no strong central government during that time, up until the, the nationalists and then the communists eventually uh, unified the country by force in 1949 and declared that in 100 years they would be the, the premier power in the world, at re returning to their place as the preeminent the preeminent power in the world system. So why is this relevant to space? Well, the Chinese from their original rockets and then have accelerated uh, in the 90s with their uh, space systems. And in the last 
And up until this point, it's very interesting watching the uh, evaluation of this because originally we're saying, oh, well, we, you know, we did that 30 years ago. Then it's, oh, we did that 20 years ago. Then it's, we did that 10 years ago. And suddenly they just start doing things that no one has done before. Like they, Chang'e, I want to say it was three, it might've been four. They put a comm satellite on the, on the um, uh, I, I don't know if your audience is familiar with Lagrange points. So I'll give a quick breakdown. It makes way more sense once you've done that. Uh, so any two celestial bodies, uh, the sun and moon, uh, sun, uh, the earth and the sun, any two celestial bodies will generate uh, five points of invisible gravity null, if you want to think of it that way. It, places you can put stuff in space, there is nothing there. But because of how gravity works, those areas specifically, you can put things in orbit around them. Now, these are massive. These are not small by any stretch of the imagination. But these are five points that are strategic, in my opinion. L1 is between the two bodies. So if this is Earth and the Moon, L1's here between the two. L2 is on the backside of the object. L3 is back behind Earth in this particular example. And then L4 and L5 are off to the side, about a 45 degree angle from uh, the Moon in either direction. The Chinese were the first to put a ComSat uh, in a what's called L2 halo orbit. So they put in they put a comm satellite on the back of the moon in in the Lagrange point and then haloed it around the moon, which means that when they launched there, they were the first ones also to land on the far side of the moon. When they launched on the back and landed on the back, obviously you have to control your stuff that have on the moon via uh, communications in some way. There's no way to do that, at least not that we know of right now without having something in halo orbit, which no one had ever done before, they managed it. So now they have a rover on the backside of the moon, not the dark side, the backside, unlike any nation prior. And we, we have very limited capability. We can't observe it from Earth because obviously it's on the backside of the moon. We can't, we have no capability to uh, use telescopes or anything. And even then telescopes are very, very difficult to use uh, just based on the distance to the moon, uh, significantly more than geo or leo. Uh, uh, geostationary orbit or low Earth orbit, for instance. All these terms my husband uses that I'm like, oh, now I kind of know what he's talking about. <laughs> I, I, try, I try to speak slowly and explain acronyms. Unfortunately, a lot of pe some people will talk with acronyms and not realize that not everyone knows them. So I try to at least stop and spell them out as I'm using them with mixed success, in all fairness. So, so they were able to do that. So, the, so that's, okay, great. They have a rover on the moon. We've done it. Um, at the time, Brian, um, it was uh, NASA Director Bridenstein, if I recall correctly, was called before Congress, said, why are the Chinese catching up? And he said, they're not catching up. They went to the moon. We were going to Mars. Okay. That's interesting. That actually gets into space development theory, which is what I bring to the table uh, as a way to think about space. So first of all, I actually respect Bridenstine quite a bit. I think he did a lot of good things. I disagree with his statement. I understand why he had to make it because obviously he, he's trying to contrast the two. But it, in my opinion, that has, there is a weakness in that thinking. It assumes that all missions relevant to space are agnostic as to the purpose. You go to space to explore. Next time you hear someone talk about space and there's a word after it, see how many times they say space exploration. It's assumed that you are doing space exploration. That's interesting, but by itself, that does not, in my opinion, justify the money or the time that we are spending in space. If all we are doing is exploring, that's not enough, in my opinion, because exploration is the first phase of space development theory. 
The second phase is expansion. And this is permanent placement of equipment or things on another area. Usually, so how this flows together, when you explore, you're finding stuff, certainly. You're looking for resources. You are looking for scientific interest, fair. You're also looking for strategic locations, or at least you should be. When you expand, you now put something there to control or speed your access or, or some benefit, permanent placement benefit in that location. Great example from the America, thinking of this in terms of uh, Europe going across the Atlantic. So 1492, Columbus explored to America. Then he came back. Then other people explored to America. Then they came back. Then people said, you know what? We would like to start some cities there. Jamestown, Plymouth, wherever you want to go with. They expanded to America. Now there's permanent placement there. That starts to change the equation because now you can gather in there. You can uh, you have a refueling position. You have uh, people living there. And so it starts to change the dynamics of that relationship. And so um, expansion, so that's the, uh, let's, let's go all the way through and then we'll come back to space actually. So exploitation is the third phase. That is, you, you now gain more economic benefit than you lose from having that permanent placement. Up until that point, it's a national exertion. You have to go refuel it. You have to bring food. You have to do this. Once you've expanded across and you have farms and you have a small industry, now the colonies at that time, the colonies, uh, the 13 colonies, for instance, are now producing more than they are draining. So it is a net benefit to England at the time to have them. That They have entered the phase of exploitation. Exploitation is often negative. I was trying to come up with an E word. There wasn't much better. So I went with that. But I know it has negative connotations sometimes. In this context, it is not, it, with a capital E, exploitation. And then finally is exclusion, which can occur at any phase. And basically this is someone is attempting to take your stuff or you are attempting to take someone else's stuff. You are attempting to exclude them from a particular location. Um, and so this is often military, and this would be the French and Indian War, which was fought before the Declaration of Independence. England was trying to expand inward, and the French and Indians were trying to stop them from expanding. They were trying to exclude each other from that particular area uh, that the, the French ended up losing. So that, those are the phases. Now, how does that apply to space? Well, when Bridenstine says, well, that's great. We went, they are going to the moon. We're going to Mars. The implication, it's far harder to go to Mars. No one else has been, et cetera, et cetera. Great. We've gone to the moon. Um, up until recently with the Artemis missions, we hadn't been back to the moon in like 20, 30 years. And we explored the moon. We did not expand to the moon. The uh, Chinese have put forward the International Lunar Research Station, the ILRS. And by the way, they have partnered with uh, Russia and uh, they just had someone else sign on. And unfortunately, I'm blanking on it. Uh, but they had another partner sign on too. So that's now the third, not anything close to the, I believe it's the 26, 27 that we're on with Artemis, but they are nonetheless trying. And the ILRS is, I would definitely, that is going to be an expansion to the moon. This is going to be a permanent lunar base, almost certainly at the South Pole that it, the Chinese are going to have by their own timelines by about 2030 somewhere between 2032 and 2036, depending on the timeline you see. There was some 
argument. They were even going to try to beat 2030, which would be amazing if they can pull that off. Uh, I'm not very confident of that. But that is an expansion. That is a permanent placement for the first time in world history of a, of a permanent human settlement on a non-Earth body. That will be significant, very significant. And that is different than going to Mars. If we are going to play this out, and in the book, I have two war games that I have as chapters, which are very, I would highly recommend people read it. It's not a particularly long read and, and hopefully won't put you to sleep too many times. But the war game goes through what happens if America doesn't expand? It simply explores and stays in orbit. And ultimately we lose. And it's not even close. We lose very badly. And the reason for that is that if you start looking at space power theorists like Mahan, interesting to pull space power and sea power together. And I'm sorry, Mahan was a sea power theorist. I think I might have said space power. You start to realize he talks a lot about coaling stations, which are refueling points. Um, and then you start to put together the physics of what it actually takes to move in, uh, to get off of Earth, which by the way, takes a significant amount of thrust. To get off of Earth requires a Saturn V. But all it took to get off of the moon was the little Apollo lander rocket. That's the difference in gravity, which means it is far, far easier to get off of the moon. And by the way, send resources off of the moon and put them into a space eco ecosystem than it is to get those same resources off of Earth. It requires significantly more. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting how you talked about the Navy and like the different points in. Like, if you read the book, it's a little bit terrifying. <laughs> you understand, like, how big of an impact it is. And I think that's why so many people need to read it. And that's why I'm covering it on the podcast. Because I think people need to know, like, why is there a space force? Why is space so important? And the way that you explain, like, how important the U.S. Navy is to America and their ability to control the world. And then how you can translate that into space. It's like... This is a really big deal, and we have a short window that we can actually have an impact before China or other adversaries could just close it and and not follow the rules that are international guidelines. So, yeah, so, yeah, that's there's a lot to talk about with that. So, first off, how fast is this accelerating? So, as I mentioned, we landed on the moon, 1969. Hooray! Uh, one of my favorite things I, I heard at one point was, um, you know, there's really only two classes of nation. There are people who use the metric system, and then there's people who have landed on the moon. And uh, that's not true anymore, uh, unfortunately. It was a good taunt for a while. But um, so America landed on the moon in 1969. The Russians, land, uh, Soviets at the time, landed on the moon. I believe it was 1976, thereabouts. It was a, about seven, eight years later. Uh, the Chinese landed on the moon in i believe 2013 I, I might be off on that but fairly recently in the last 15 years india just became the fourth nation to land on the moon japan launched a, another lunar lander in the last two weeks in the last week i haven't been able to find if it landed successfully yet but five nations and by the way uh india was the first nation to land on the lunar south pole which is almost certain in my opinion that is where the competition is going to occur um due to some uh, amazing discoveries in the last 10 years, but it's going to be the Lunar South Pole, I think, uh, which is where the competition is going to be. They were the first nation to land there. Japan is attempting to compete as well. China and Russia are both in the game. Uh, and then obviously America with the Artemis Accords. I think, by, in my opinion, 
by 2036 to 2040, you will have a bare minimum of two lunar bases on the South Pole and permanent placement from at least two world factions because we are in the middle of great power competition between the United States and China and Russia, or China and Russia on the other side, with largely the United States, uh, Europe, and some of our Asian partners, um, uh, South Korea, uh, Japan, Australia, that sort of stuff. And you're going to have a, a significant competition off world. And this is important because in the history of the world, well, first of all, if you have not read The Expanse, I would highly recommend it. It is really good sci-fi. Interestingly enough, it was actually a capture of a role-playing game that ended up becoming a story. So there are some very shocking things in that story. And part of it was due to the role-playing game. It's very interesting knowing the history of it. That's not particularly important. But what is important is, and we've known this for years, you read Mining the Sky or any sorts of books in that are background of how much wealth is contained in asteroids. We recently had an asteroid that went by Earth that had more gold than the entire world supply. There, There is enough iron in the asteroid, in the asteroid belt, to be able to successfully terraform Mars many times over, to, to make a complete greenhouse around it and not even utilize a fraction of it. That's not even counting waters and other... Um, other things that are very useful water in in space water obviously has to be there for human habitation but water is also the currency of space flight is the way i've heard it described as you can break it down into its components oxygen and hydrogen and you have very basic propellant and that will then let you get anywhere else in the solar system and once you're out of earth's gravity well and you're onto the plane of space the silent sea as you will you can move anywhere in the solar system at a fraction of the cost of delta V um, acceleration and, and movement, utilizing very little propellant because there's not a lot of gravity pulling you anywhere. You don't have to have this big thruster uh, to get off of Earth. And why is all of this important? Throughout history, nations have been presented with the option of turning inward or expanding outward and and helping to amass resources to ensure their own survival. Uh, the last major time, I would argue, there's, there's, I would argue there's been a couple. The best one I can think of is 1492. Everyone, we kind of talked about it already with Columbus. 1492, Columbus sailed ocean blue. Everyone knows that part. And Europe, which, by the way, was not a world beater prior to getting the resources of the Americas um, and the rest of the world. To be clear, like, they, they were fighting um, external aggression up until, I, I want to say it was 1619 or something like that. Like there was invasions into Vienna, which is right next to Germany in the middle of Europe. They were not world beaters. They were not dominant up before that point. And largely, you could argue the resources that they were able to gather from around the world uh, through trade and other things. They were able to amass an, an amazing amount of resources that obviously uh, dominant in the 18 and 1900s. But that's the story everyone knows, most people know. What people don't know, most of them don't, is that in about 1420, give or take, uh, the timing is a little bit hazy, uh, there was Chinese that were actually, they, they had uh, Admiral Zhang, was, they still have um, a replica of his treasure ships in China. Namrata, the Nami, uh, the lady I mentioned prior, Dr. Goswami, she, uh, she was there, she saw them. Uh, the the inscription as well, which says, we will never forget. Because what happened is 
they also had the opportunity to turn outward. They, they, we know they made it at least as far as Africa because there's an African village that's basically all Chinese DNA uh, because there was a Chinese ship that shipwrecked there and they intermarried with the local village. So it's basically all Chinese DNA. We know they made it that far and potentially further. Uh, and of course, in the Chinese history books, they play that up as well. Oh, well, you know, we were getting tribute from everyone at that point. We were the most important nation. Um, but what happened? So they, the, the, allegedly, the Chinese uh, society, particularly the aristocrats, didn't like the disruptive influences that these outside trading was happening. And so they turned the king against Admiral Zhang. They burned or just let the treasure fleet rot, turned inward for about 400 years. You can do that. That is entirely possible, especially when you're a nation that basically is able to function mostly internally as the Chinese were able to from about 1400 to about 1800. Now, if you remember the story, about 1800, some other nations showed up who had, in fact, expanded. Now they have the resources of the world behind them, and the Chinese were not able to resist. The Chinese are not, the Chinese intentionally, I believe, part of their national rejuvenation is they intend to be the ones to expand this time. And you talked very simply about a couple of things that you have to be considered with uh, space as an expansion. Because the space economy right now is projected to be in the hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars per year in the next period, whatever, whatever you see, within 10, 20 years. And these are projections based off of the current state. I think what's dangerous about looking at space as a current state is it doesn't it doesn't take into account the physical characteristics of the space and what is possible there. Uh, in much the same way that in 18, 1914, uh, the aircraft was considered uh, simply a reconnaissance platform. Um, not less than 20 years later, they were one of the premier strike craft uh, for basically every advanced military in the world because people had figured out what you could do with them. Same with submarines, uh, I would argue. So you look at space, the, you have the moon, which has, so the reason that South, uh, the South Pole is going to be, I think the area competed for is that based on um, a Indian, uh, an Indian uh, probe that went past that was able to identify for the first time that there was water on the moon and Clementine, which was an American similar uh, satellite that was also able to, to confirm that there was in fact water on the moon. That, in my opinion, that single event changed just about every equation with space flight and space expansion. Because for the first time, we had confirmation that there was, in fact, water close to us that we could use to get out of Earth's gravity well, go to the moon, have a permanent placement there, and then refuel. That, If we're talking about going to Mars, for instance, it is far easier to get to Mars after you've got out of Earth's gravity well. You can refuel on the moon. And then you can burn much quicker to get over to Mars, which, you know, that helps you no matter how you design your spacecraft, you are going to be exposed to the solar radiation for an extended period of time. You're going to try to shrink that as much as possible. Um, that helps you keep your astronauts from getting all green and glowy, which does help with their longevity. So that is, uh, that is certainly a benefit. And that's very, very, very basic. Um, space expansion. That doesn't at all. Mars is also interesting. I'm, I'm not entirely sure the, the best argument for that as you've gone now back down into another gravity while you have to get back out of. The, the, the linchpin for me is the asteroid belt. If once, and this is where the expanse comes in place, there is an entire culture of people called belters that 
do mining and uh, industrial work in the belt, the asteroid belt, and iron, um, water, all sorts of other resources, gold included, um, which isn't necessarily useful for you know bringing back to Earth to sell or putting your stockpile or whatever, but you can use it for uh, other resource, other building and manufacturing in space, which is where gold actually could be much more useful there. And the, the economic resources you can get from the asteroid belt dwarf that of the Earth. If Putting it in perspective, if you were able to generate a nation that had no holdings on Earth, but they had the complete run, they had, a, they had bases in deep space, in space, uh, the moon, um, uh, O'Neill cylinders, something like that. And they had uh, stuff in the asteroid belt and they were able to mass an economy in that form. They would be able to, in my opinion, they would be able to dominate any nation on Earth, if not all nations on Earth. Simply because, among other reasons, you would have an incredible ability to move resources. You would have virtually unlimited resources. You would have virtually no concern for pollution or anything like that because you have in, literally infinite space with which to produce things industrially. And most important, as you're starting to get into scary concepts, um, there. It, first of all, if you've got asteroid mining, that means that at least in some capability, you have. And we're already starting to look at planetary defense, which is a great thing. Um, we need planetary defense. I would certainly not like to be the dinosaurs, but uh, if you can, the the scary thing and why we need to make sure that we have a space force and we have a capability to defend ourselves in space. Um, if you can have a space capability to mine or redirect asteroids. That means that you can redirect them where you want to. Depending on where you redirect them, uh, especially since it does not take a lot, and some of these are very big, and some of these cause a lot of problems when they hit Earth, if that's what someone would choose to do. We can, we're concerned right now about nuclear weapons. Depending on the size of the asteroid being used and how fast it's moving, um, that is far worse than any nuclear warhead you could possibly build. And that and that's on the purely military. That's the economic, I think, is where you literally make your money. But you have to be concerned about the other military elements of this as well. Yeah, you gotta look at both sides of it. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things you talked about, like unlimited resources. So as I guess an altruistic person thinking like, why can't everybody be in space and why can't we all make money? But in your book you talk about like that's that's not China's plan and it's not really a realistic and it's and even though space is limitless, there's key points that if you have control, then you control space. Yes, I, I would argue that like any like any domain, uh, land, land, air, water, um, there are certain areas that are strategic uh, to be able to at least project power, if not control. And those apply the same in space. I already kind of mentioned the Lagrange points, at least at first, the moon is a huge one. Um, because if you can't get to the moon, or for instance, if we were nation A and nation B, nation A wants to get off of Earth and go to Mars, and nation B controls the moon, and nation B doesn't want you going to the moon, that's a concern. And between that and the Lagrange points, it would be, it would be significantly more difficult to, to execute something like that um, than if you had at least a competing base on the, on the moon, if not, uh, if not controlled it yourself. Have you uh, watched the show For All Mankind? It's on Apple Plus. I have to say, I have 
heard it many times. I've, I've, I think it sounds amazing. I, I have to say I have not had a chance to watch that yet. It's really interesting to watch. Sometimes you have to be like, well, these, these, these writers aren't scientists, but it is a really interesting premise of like, you know, seeing Russia and America fight it out on the moon and different things that happen and how it like changed the world and technologies. And it's, it was really interesting to watch. I think you would enjoy it. You just have to sometimes like shut your brain off about the science because you're like, this doesn't quite work. Well, and so that actually brings up something else. So interestingly, uh, that would be very difficult under the current construct to have armed forces on the moon. Simply, uh, under the Outer Space Treaty, or OST, that was signed, I believe, in 1966. I might be a little off on the date. Uh, prior to the moon landings, uh, the Russians and the United States and a whole bunch of other people ratified it. And it has a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but the important one and relevant to that is you are not allowed to put any armed bodies read militaries on a on the moon or any celestial body i believe is is the wording i might be a little off on it but basically um based on that you are not allowed to put military forces on the moon so far so good so you mentioned earlier well china would try to change international norms well uh yeah and china has a history of this china has actively been subverting international norms and blatantly disregarding international findings. A great example of this, which I talk about in my book, is the South China Sea, uh, which China claims and is also claimed by, I believe, no fewer than five other nations in that region, particularly the Philippines, which claims several islands. And among other things, China went in there and said, well, you know, this was back, I believe, I think it was still Xi at the time. It might have been a prior premier. He was talking to Obama and he they were in the process of building islands and obama said well you know we're really not cool with that that's kind of not you know what we wanted um this is in abrogation of international law etc and the chinese basically said well yeah but you know we're fishing in the region we're not going to militarize these islands we're just using them as harbors and you know we'd really appreciate it we won't ask for anything more and then we had Interestingly, tie back into space, we had uh, civilian companies that have imagery satellites that were able to take pictures of those same islands a couple of years later. And they have anti-aircraft batteries and what looks to me like uh, military tarmacs and runways for aircraft and uh, potentially other force basing as well, which tells me that was probably militarized. Uh, certainly looks like it to me, uh, unless we have different definitions of militarized, I suppose. And ultimately, this is the Chinese basically thumbing their nose at the international community and basically saying, now we're going to do it and no one can stop us. Then they tried to argue that these fake islands that they created, um, at great expense, by the way, impart the same claims of national sovereignty that uh, actual islands, naturally existing islands do. International court basically said, You're, you are no. No, you can't do that. That's that. There's no law that even remotely supports that. Doesn't change the fact they've still established uh, air defense zones and no-go zones and will actively intercept you with aircraft and almost collide into you uh, they, as they have almost on several instances, not to mention their naval operations as well. Um, and so they, even though there is no international law support there, they are willing to engage in acts of violence or Power projection, I guess, would be the more politically correct word to say it, that 
forces people to respect their claim, despite the fact there is no international basis for it. And the most glaring example of this is also when they uh, took the Scarborough Shoals, which was a uh, it was a area between them and the Philippines, and they basically came in and and kicked the Filipinos off of it, and then took it and said, "Okay, it's ours now." And the Philippine the Philippines went to the international court and said, "Hey." The Chinese did this. This is an abrogation of international law. What are you going to do about it? And uh, the international tribunal there came back and said, yep, you're right. That is, they are in, they are an abrogation of international law. And the Chinese basically said, yeah, but our legal experts said that's not really binding. So we're not going to really respect that. Once again, it, you have to understand that, and I, in my opinion, that's not a, that is not, that is not coincidental. That is a feature. China is a rising power, and they are, in my opinion, they are what, in international relations, what's referred to as a revisionist power. They desire to revise the international system in a way that uh, helps them out, that makes them more, it's more beneficial to them, how it's organized. The current international system, largely after World War II, was uh, mostly orchestrated by the United States because, quite honestly, we were the only ones left at that point. I saw a really interesting share of American industrial capacity over over the latter half of the 20th century. And it, I mean, it, at one point, we were like 50% of the world's industrial capacity. And that fell, 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 fell. I think we're like 20% now, something like that. But what's really interesting is it's not that we it's not that we reduced our capacity. It's actually that the rest of the world's industrial capacity was basically destroyed. And so as a share of that capacity, we were huge at the end of World War II. So we basically made the system that largely it did benefit us, but it also, we were setting it up intentionally to try to never have another World War II, especially now that we had nuclear weapons. And ultimately China has tried to subvert that and continues to subvert that intentionally because they don't want that current order. They want to revisit it with another order as they are allied with Russia and everyone's aware of just how uh, magnanimous and loving Russia has been with Ukraine over the last couple of years. That that's very concerning. Yeah. So I kind of want to shift the focus. We talked a lot about about topics that you covered in the book, but went in way more detail. But if someone is listening and thinking, should I get into a career in space? What would you say is like now a good time to be in space? Like, what's the future horizon supposed to be in space? So in the interest of full disclosure, space has always had a problem with overpromising, quite honestly, because everyone gets so excited about it. And, oh, this is going to happen in five years. And then it doesn't. And everyone's like, oh, well, just like the last four times you said it. So with that caveat, because clearly uh, there is a history there and I want to acknowledge that. That being said, um, two things stand out to me that this is stuff that has never happened in space before. First, well, three things, actually. First is the commercialization of Leo. I, I would have to say, I don't know the exact numbers on it, but for the first time, commercial satellites form a significant amount of the on-orbit satellite pieces. And I, I would even hazard a guess, it might be close to stripping, outstripping national capabilities. In other words, per sa more satellites than, I mean, SpaceX is launching satellites at a blistering rate, blistering, and they're continuing to accelerate. And so the commercialization at LEO, that's never happened before. This is, 
this is very interesting to observe. And that means that all that commercialization means there, there is places for people that we need expertise to be able to continue to make that happen. The moon landings, I talked about the, the first two moon landings were 1969 and 19, I believe it was 76. We have had three moon landings in the last 10 years, two of them, assuming the Japanese were successful. I'll, I'll check that after we get off. Uh, but two of them within the last month, that's an extreme acceleration. And that's not even getting into the um, NASA CLEPS program, the um, commercial lunar payloads, where NASA is contracting with commercial companies to build payloads to put on the moon. For the first time, we're having commercial payloads go to the moon. That's also new. That's never happened before. Um, and then finally, you're going to have, in the middle of a national, international power competition between the United States on one side and China on the other with other players, of course, but primarily those two, um, having two bases on the moon, I think by 2036, that will be competing bases. Now, that doesn't mean that war is going to break out a la for all mankind. The United States and China already have uh, Antarctic uh, bases together and that we don't, you know, start sniping at each other on the regular. Interestingly enough, actually, the Antarctic Treaty is very close to the Outer Space Treaty. So I think there is some interesting parallels there. I'm not saying that we're going to engage in that, but nonetheless, it is going to be in a time of power, great power competition. That also has never happened before. Um, we've never had two humans from competing nations be on the moon at the same time, at least not to the, my knowledge. And so is this the time to get into space? This is a very exciting time to be in space. And I would say that the problem we have at the moment is we don't have enough people in space because we need people that have the hard sciences, that have the courage and also the excitement to get into the field and stay there. And there's tons of startups. There's everything from the traditional uh, space contractors like uh, Lockheed, Northrop, to the, the new, what I would term like the new giants, SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin. And then all of the, the, the huge list of up and coming space companies. Yeah, there is so much. Yeah. And I, I don't see that slowing down. If anything, I would assume that will accelerate in the next 10 to 15 years. So I, I would say this is an awesome time to get into space. And there is also a lot of encouragement from industry and, and public as well to try to get people into it. So a great time to get into it um, and a great time to get a chance to read about it as well. Um, I would recommend my book, Space Power Ascendant. It was good enough that Amanda had me on. So I, I have to say that there is something there. Yeah, no, I'm, and it's on General Gutlines. He's a three star in the Air or Space Force. I almost said Air Force. Yeah. And um, I, I just really think it's really interesting because there's like so much talk. And I, you mentioned at the beginning, like there was like this why is China? And that's kind of what I've been like, why is China bad? Like, what are the details? And it's really, it, I didn't know about, you know, a book like this that would explain it in such a detailed way that really helped open my eyes to like, knowing why the Space Force is so important, why the things that, you know, all of the different stuff that's happening in space and why. So, and then I connected with you on LinkedIn. So I've been following you, which has been really cool because I've been telling my husband and we're like, hey, look what I saw. But I saw a couple of weeks ago you were talking about how the U.S. made a strategic shift and you were really excited. So what has changed since the book has been published with how the U.S. is approaching space? And instead of exploration, are they getting more to the expansion side? Yeah. So 
obviously Artemis. I'm, I'm wearing the, the logo for it. Um, I think Artemis is a good step forward. It's a good first step. So since I wrote the book, um, there, as the Space Force has continued to mature, I think uh, the Space Force celebrates three or four years at this, uh, this year in uh, December. Uh, 2019, yeah, it should be four years, I believe. And um, in those four years, there is a lot that has uh, gone on. But I think the Space Force has gone through a lot of changes. Obviously, I, I'm speaking in my own personal capacity here. I, I do have to say that the if I could point to one thing that is a good start is the new Space Force mission statement uh, that that uh, was put out by uh, the, the Chief of Space Operations, the, the CSO, General Saltzman. And the old one, I mean, go back and read it if you guys if you if you get a chance. And uh, when you do listen to um, Weird Al Yankovic's mission statement song, it is. Is, is I think it's like four lines, five lines long. It's like the Space Force will do this and it will do this and it will do it for this reason. It will do this, do that, do that. That's a very, 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 very long mission statement. And quite honestly, I don't know anyone that had it memorized, which is kind of what you want in a mission statement. The new mission statement is that the United States Space Force will protect the United States interests in, into and from space. I might be a little off on the order of that, but those are the important ones. That's easy. That's I think seven eight words. That's a that shows a significant shift in the space force from when it started. I, I heard almost everyone was talking about the space force like the space force supports the joint fight. Okay, so the space force, a military service, their only job for existing is to support other services. That doesn't sound like a good justification for a military service to me. The new mission statement implies if our job as the space force um and when i say our job speaking as the space force from uh, in in the context of the space force if the space force's job is to protect into and from that implies that there is a mission there that is outside it support certainly supports the joint fight certainly but there is this unique mission there that is space force only um because no one else has that mission to support into and from and obviously, yes, the the actual mission will be executed thanks to the um, Goldwater Nichols. The the actual mission will be executed through Space Command, which is the combatant command that is responsible for everything over a hundred kilometers. So, hundred kilometers and up, it's Space Command actually has the authority for that. Um, Space Force, though, is going to provide most of the forces. So that I would point that as one. It's a some could view that as a minor thing. And it, it, it has yet to be seen what exactly that is going to do and, and what sh new shape that's going to have. But the fact that there is a mission statement that clearly says that, um, that is radically different than anything that could have been or was produced by Space Force, Space Command, or any permutation thereof prior to the actual founding of the Space Force in 2019. So that would be one thing that, that stands out as this is different. Um, and that's not even talking about, you know, SpaceX and procuring rockets through that way and various other things. But uh, overall, I, I see it in a positive direction. And uh, the question is, are we going to be able to successfully compete with China, who is also not sleeping on this? They are also moving quickly. And their ILRS, they, have, they are at least, at least some of the um, various reports now, 
admittedly from Chinese propaganda probably, so take it with a grain of salt, two or three, probably better. Uh, but trying to accelerate the ILRS, um, they, are, they are definitely not napping. And I mean, we could speak at length on Chinese and the, the, the intricacies of the Chinese nation and all this sort of stuff. Unfortunately, I think that would probably be a little long, but maybe next time. Maybe, yeah. I think this interview has been so great. It's so eye-opening, and I really hope people do go out and get your book. You can also get it on Audible because it is fairly technical, and it was a great book to read on Audible. And um, and then I also got my own hard copy because I wrote an article for Clearance Jobs, which I'll link to in the show notes. That's actually how we got connected. And so I'm really excited about you know, just learning more about space and not feeling like I don't know what, what's going on in space. And now I have a greater understanding and it's just been great to follow you on LinkedIn and be able to see like different things. I mean, a mission statement is so important in, in business, in a military. And if you're on a mission and you're going this way and you should be going straight, then you're going to get way off the farther you go. And so the fact that there's shifting their focus. I think it's so important. So thank you so much for your time, for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it.